Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Good evening. The sisters of a Perth mother who was murdered by her ex-husband are calling for urgent changes to the system ahead of her killer's sentencing. It took more than an hour for police to respond to triple zero calls the night Lynn Cannon was killed. Her family believes it cost Lynn 
her life. I was recently criticised, pretty harshly, by a listener on Facebook for saying that I feel there's a lot of talk about family and domestic violence in Australia, and yet nothing ever changes. While we're endlessly told about new initiatives, education and various measures being put into place by governments and police, women are still being murdered at a rate of roughly one a week in this country. In fact, so far in 2023, one Australian woman has been murdered on average every five days. Who will be next? I always wonder. What is next week's woman doing right now? As I record this intro and as you listen to it, does she know she's in danger? Does her family know? Is there anything any of us can do to prevent her violent death? Our guest today was a family member who did know that someone she loved was in grave danger of being hurt by her ex-husband. Jackie Darley joins us to tell us her family's story, but also to tell us about an idea they believe, and I believe, would actually make a real difference to family violence in Australia. We begin, though, by getting to know Jackie's family, which includes her baby sister, Lynn, and also their sister, Christine, who you may hear pipe up from time to time. She joined Jackie in this recording for moral support. We're from Liverpool in England, and we're five girls. I'm the eldest of the five. Lynn was the youngest, and she was our baby sister. So her will to survive started as soon as she was born, really, because she was born early. She was prone to chest infections every winter. She would get really ill and she would lose lots of weight, but she'd always come through. She'd always bite it off, you know. So she was sickly, was she, as, as our mums used to say? She's the sickly yeah, one. Yeah, she was. Yeah, but, but not weak. Her determination and her strong will came out, you know, so she would always overcome things. That was Lynn. I mean, she was determined if she set her mind to something, then she'd give it her all. She was fiercely loyal as well. And she was a protector of the underdog. You know, Lynn was always like that. I think um, one example of that was when she went to high school, there was a girl there in school who had, she was brought up in care. So she'd been in and out of foster homes and she was getting bullied in school. So Lynn took her under her wing and made her a best friend and she never ever got bullied again. Lynn looked out for her. I think a lot of that was from our childhood. Our parents separated when Lynn was three and so we were a house of six girls. Mm, wow. Yeah, our mum's really young. She had me when she was 15, so she's really young. And we never had much materially, but that never really mattered because we had each other. And we had a sense of humour, you know, we'd always have a good giggle together. We had each other's backs. And I think that that upbringing, it made us closer. When you know what it's like to go without, it makes you more aware of people who are in need. And Lynn was especially like that. When she was 16, she met Paul Cannon, who we now call the maggot. Yeah, that's fair enough. He, at the time, would have seen a beautiful, vibrant, confident young woman. And he set out to make her his. And they met in Liverpool? They met in Liverpool. I was over here. I was in Australia when she met him. Were they around the same age? He was um, maybe three years older than her, okay. I think. Christine's just correct me, it was four years older. 
Christine and Lynn were very close. They're the closest in age. And she was actually with Lynn when she met the maggot. He soon realized that she had this soft, caring side that he could easily manipulate. But then at 17, she was struck with an illness. It was called Guillain-Barre. And it put her in ICU in hospital for six months. So she was completely paralyzed from the neck down. Your own body attacks itself. And so she, she couldn't even breathe. So she was in ICU for six months. And then with in and out of hospital and physio, it would have been about a year. I remember one time she'd been released from hospital and she was struggling to breathe. And by the time the ambulance got her back to the hospital, they said that she had been breathing through the a hole the size of a, a biro tip pen on a pen. Such was Lynn's determination to live. During this time, the maggot was in the pubs and um, with his mates drumming up sympathy for himself, you know, and um, having to go through Lynn's illness. And there was one time when Lynn had come home and mum had made her a bed in the lounge room and my mum had a mattress next to her bed where she would sleep with a night to keep an eye on her. She remembers one time the maggot had been out drinking with his mates and he'd come round to visit her this night and he said to mum, oh look, why don't you sleep in your, in your bed tonight? I don't mind sleeping on the mattress and, and keeping an eye on her. I think mum was a bit reluctant at first but she was exhausted and Lynn indicated that she wanted him to be there, so mum had gone to bed. But she heard raised voices, heard him shouting at her. Now, at this stage, Lynn couldn't walk, and she was skeletal. She had lost so much weight. And she came down to see him leaving. Sam, he was walking out of the door, and he turned around to mum and said, I don't know how you put up with her and her whinging. And mum ran into the lounge to find Lynn so choked up and so upset that she was struggling to breathe again. They did split up for a short time then, but unfortunately, Lynn's forgiving nature, he took advantage of that and they ended up back together and continuing their relationship and they were married in 1996. Which is so difficult for the family, isn't it? I'm sure by that stage, at least some of you, if not all of you, had serious misgivings about this relationship. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, you don't want to allow, you don't want to lose her. No, you want to support your sister mm. and you don't want to lose her. And you, you don't want her to feel like she's lost the support of her family. And the way he would talk to her was always designed to strip her of her confidence. But that was never going to happen with her sisters and her mum because we would always build her up. And just the person she was anyway, she wouldn't allow that to happen. She used to just try and brush it off. It must have hurt her though. Why do you think she put up with it? And I'm not asking that in terms of in a kind of why didn't she leave way, obviously. But I know that we can get ourselves into a space where we think there's a great man in there. I can help him get to that place. I can help him heal from something in his past where we're thinking it's a project, it's worth it. We're going to get to a good place with this man. Do you know of anything like that, that she believed about this guy? Yeah, I think he knew which buttons to press with Lynn. 
And this is, this is the whole thing of coercive control. They know, they know how to work that person. And it is so subtly done that a lot of women out there don't even realize that they're victims of coercive control. Lynn didn't see herself as a victim at all. She always tried to look for the good in him. She felt sorry for him because he didn't have a relationship with his brother and he would play on that. He would always appear to be remorseful after he'd been hurling abuse Sarah the night before. And he just he would get around her. It was, it was hard for the family to see because in all other situations, she would not let anybody walk over. She was just so good at everything else and so strong in all other areas of her life. It was like she was superwoman and he was a kryptonite. I think he also knew that coming from a, a broken household, it was important to Lynn that when she got married, that it, she would keep that family unit together. Yeah. And so when her boys were born, she was determined to keep that family unit together. And he knew that, he knew it was important for her that her kids grow up with their dad. She got pregnant on her honeymoon with, with her eldest boy. And then she was such a good little mum. She was a devoted mum. She absolutely adored them. Mm. But do you know what? They adored her. They had so much respect for their mum, and they still do. They were witnesses to, you know, the treatment that she got from their dad. I mean, she always tried to shield them from it when he would start hailing abuse. And uh, she would send them to their rooms. You know, she was always like a mama bear trying to protect her cubs, you know, and she would send them off to their rooms so they didn't have to hear it. But of course they did because he would be shouting and hearing abuse. They told me that when they were younger, they would hear it and they would be in their room together just wishing that they were older so that they could go out and defend her or go out and stand up to him. And, you know, her eldest boy, when he was 13, he'd had enough and he went and stood in front of her and stood up to his dad and you know he offered to fight him he offered to fight his 13 year old son watch to my sister's horror you know that's the person he was he was a true narcissist as the boys got older she wanted to give them more opportunities in life and we were from probably a a working class rough area back in the UK and she wanted more for her boys and she'd been out here on holiday to see me it was just after her illness and so she knew the opportunity that Australia held and she wanted that for her boys and so she decided to do a hairdressing course and she became a really good hairdresser and she used that to emigrate to Australia and so they moved over here in 2005. Fabulous straight to Perth? Yeah, straight to Perth because yeah. by that time we were all here. One yeah, by right. one, all my sisters came over. So, <laughs> oh, um, that's great. Yeah, so we're all here. And, you know, even, the, even then when they came over, I remember her wanting to start a new life here. And I took her to see, they had show homes not far from here. And I said, well, let's go and see the show homes, you know, and you can see what, what you can get. And she was all excited about her new life. And... He gambled and drank all the money that they brought over with them. It just all disappeared, gambling and drinking. So forcing her to be like her, the main breadwinner again. She had to get a job as a hairdresser and she was the manager of a salon. She did really well. 
she was the one putting the paying the rent and struggling to put food on the table. And there did come a time, this was later on in Australia, when he put in for this compensation claim. He didn't work the whole time. And I think it took nearly two years to come through. And she was going back and forth to work. And she would work Thursday nights and it would be dark and late at night when she'd be driving home and her car kept, she kept having car trouble. So one of my sisters, Jenny, was really worried about her breaking down late at night and being alone. So she lent him money to get herself another car. When his money finally came through and we've since found out that he was given around, it was 300 and around 330000 in compensation. Which would have been enough to buy a house in Perth at that time. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And he gave her $40,000, which would have covered his rent and keep for the two years that she'd kept him. Immediately out of that 40000 she paid my sister Jenny the 10000 back that she'd lent her for the car. And she put that 30000 away, hoping to get a house. He gave his boys $5,000 each, leaving himself with around 280000 He went through the lot, Michelle, in a year, one year. Flew himself business class back to the UK and then flew him and his dad business class around on holidays in Europe. And then he came back and he was down at the pub with his mates, trying to be, you know, thinking he was, you know, all that in the jelly bean with all of his money, yeah. um, which quickly disappeared. He came to my sister after a year and said, oh, all the money's gone, but but you'll, you'll look after us, won't you? I know you will. And I think it was at that stage where she thought, enough. And I went round to get my hair done. She used to do my hair for me. And I went round to get my hair done one day, and I'll never forget, she said to me, we've decided, Jack, me and Paul have decided to separate. Inside me, I was like, yes. You know, and I said, oh, really? She said, yeah. She said, well, I asked the boys how they'd feel, you know, if me, if me and their dad separated. She said, I couldn't believe it, Jack. They came around and said to me, Mom, we can't believe you've put up with it for this long. We've heard how he's spoken to you. We're relieved that you've finally come to your senses and you're going. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, she said, so that's it. I'm out of here. You know? <laughs> oh, that's so, so that, wonderful. That. And then she got it. She, um, it was around the time when they were allowing people to take money out of their super. Mm. It must have just been after COVID. So she got some money out of her super and they separated and she applied for a mortgage and got it. And we was, oh, she was so proud of herself. Uh, we were all so proud of her and she couldn't believe it. And so she bought this little place. It's not much, but, you know, it was enough for her and her boys. Mm. And they were supposed to separate then. But again, he came to her like, oh, the place that I was supposed to be staying has fallen through. I've got nowhere to live and... Oh, so don't tell me. He never ended up in there too. Oh, she ended up putting him up, you know, and, and we were saying, look, just get him, even the boys, just get him out of here, Mom. Get him out of here because he'd drink and then he'd be abusing her again, mm. you know? And so she helped him in the end find a place, rent a room of somebody, you know, and he finally moved out. He would just hang around like a bad smell and constantly, you know, try, he wouldn't let, let her go. She was blossoming without him, but he just wouldn't let her go. At any time, were you 
concerned for her safety yet. Now we know that these kind of controlling men really start to freak out when they realise that they are losing control and they've lost control of this woman, that they've used so many ways. When one way stops working, they they find another way and it works for a while. And so by this stage they've been together for decades and he's starting to use really desperate methods to stay in Lynn's life, like just literally showing up and saying I've got nowhere to go and being pathetic and, again, relying on her kindness and just not leaving and making her go and find him a place to live and making her do all of that stuff for him like he's a baby. Yeah. So at any point did you start to think, oh, these guys can really freak out when they actually lose control of a woman? We never thought he was capable of doing what he did. Yeah, because he'd never been violent before. Is that right? No. Not physically? Not physically. Um, My sister Christine, there was one incident when they were younger. Um, Lynn had called her and I think that this was before they were married. Lynn had called her to say that, you know, she needed to leave because they had been in an argument. His mates were there. Christine went straight round to, to get here. And as she was leaving, he was just yelling and he'd call her vile names uh, but he picked up one of those heavy glass ashtrays and mm. um, that everybody used to have and he held it at Lynn and Christine actually put her hand up to block it from getting to Lynn's face and Christine took the full brunt of it on her hand and um, she's got arthritis in her hand now and it bruised all her knuckles her hand was all swollen for days that's the only time we've ever witnessed any kind of physical thing. It's interesting, though, because it is in that situation, isn't it? Even way back then, way early on, it's in the situation where he, it's like he's, he's losing control. And I just wanted to really get that out because I say it all the time, you know, we have to take so many times men kill their partners or ex-partners and that, that's the first time they've ever lashed out at them violently. That's it, Yeah. There's been no indication before, apart from the subtle coercive control that has been taking place over the years, that outsiders sometimes can see, but the victim cannot see it. Yeah. And she couldn't see that. Was she scared of him at all? No. Do you know what? All of my sisters have all spoken to each other and each one of us at some point in time individually have asked her, would he ever hit you? Has he ever hit you? Would he ever do that? And she always said, no, he'll mouth off and he'll he'll get angry and he'll slam doors and he'll throw things, but he wouldn't hurt me. He wouldn't actually hit me, you know? Nobody would have dreamed that he would be capable of doing what he did. You know, he kept control of her by always playing the victim. He would be threatening to kill himself, threatening to take his own life. And so she was constantly concerned that he was he was going to do that. You know, he would be, oh, I, I can't get work, I've got no money. She would be lending him money, taking him food parcels over. So he was still showing that he was reliant on her and she still felt that she needed to take care of him. She just wanted to live her life, you know, and for him to move on with his. I remember saying, why don't you say the divorce papers? You've been separated for two years now. And she said, oh, I'm just worried it might tip him over the edge. I'm just waiting for him to be in a good place. She was always thinking of him first, you know. He knew he was losing control because we could all see her thriving. 
it was just so evident to everybody around. She just looked radiant. Because all the all the stress and worry had gone from her face. Her eyes were brighter. She stood more erect. She just looked healthier, happier. She smiled and laughed a lot more. Both the boys have said, just before this happened, that they had both reached a point in their lives where they were the happiest that they'd been. She was the happiest she'd been, and her boys were as well. So I know that Christine was the first person to call the police, is that correct? Yeah, Christine called the police at 7.30 that night on the 5th of December. So what had happened was he had gone around to Lynn's house on the 4th of December. It was her birthday. And Lynn had recently met someone and she was with him. And this guy absolutely adored her, put her up on a pedestal, loved and respected her and treated her how she should always have been treated. And we're so grateful to him because he brought a lot of happiness into her life. So the maggot had gone around there on this morning and she had a dodgy door, a dodgy side door and he realised he couldn't get in the front and he had gone around the side and he managed to break into her house. Oh, so he didn't knock, he didn't announce himself at all, he was actually trying to sneak up No, no, he just, he got in, yeah. And she'd panicked and got up and told him, look, I've got somebody here, you have to go. So... He was really angry and he'd gone outside to get a big pipe out of his car, big stick that he kept in his car and was threatening to bash this guy's car up outside. And anyway, the the situation diffused and then the next day, the 5th of December, Lynn had taken in my niece. So my niece was staying with him. They'd both just got up. It was really early in the morning before 7 a.m., and my niece came out and she smelled cigarette smoke and so thought that's strange. Neither of them smoked and then saw sunglasses on the outside table and thought, it's him. And he suddenly appeared, demanding to know where Lim was. And Lim was still in the bathroom getting ready and he went in there and shut the door behind him. And then my niece heard Lim shout, get the police get the police. My niece ran to see what was happening and he had actually left and was walking to his car. Well, Lynn turned round to my niece then and said, he just threatened me with a knife. Can't believe he just threatened me with a knife. And she said, should I call the police? And she said, oh, it's okay. He's gone. I just said that so that he would go. I just wanted to frighten him. But my niece was really worried. She didn't want to leave her there. Because he came back, he came back. And my sister, Lynn, being who she was, made him a cup of coffee and took it outside to him on the table and sat outside trying to diffuse the situation, calm calm him down because that's what she had always done. And when Henry had gone into a violent rage, she would just stay calm and she would calm him down. She'd done it all her life and so she thought this is another one of those incidents where I can calm him and I need to because my niece is here, you know. So she was calming him down and she said to Jazzy, I'm, I'm okay, you can go to work. But Jazzy wasn't happy to go to work and so she went out to a car and she called my sister, Christine. And 
Christine immediately got on the phone to Lynn was messaging her and Lynn was just messaging her saying, I'm fine. I'll call you soon. Christine was like, pick up now or I'm calling the police. I need to hear your voice. And Lynn called her back and she said, I'm okay, Chris. I'm okay. And she said, well, I didn't know that. He could have had your phone. He could have been sending me those messages. Is he still there? How dare he threaten you? She said, oh, he's leaving. She said, well, she said, he's okay. The situation is calm. I'm fine. And she said, well, Mike, Christine's partner, is two minutes away. He's on his way around. So the maggot, being the coward that he is, stood up and left, knowing that. There was a man coming. Yeah, the man coming around, to, he'll sort you out. In hindsight, looking back, we realise now that he had gone round there that morning to kill her, but because her niece was there, and then because my sister, Christine, was on the phone, and then her partner was two minutes away, help was being sent, his plans were thwarted, and he couldn't do anything about it then. So he had gone away then, obviously, deciding that he needed to isolate her and get her away from everyone. And so that's what he set about doing. Lynn had gone to work afterwards, Christine had been on the phone, you were on the phone to her, weren't you, Chris, for about 20 minutes, convincing her that she had to go to the police and get a restraining order. This time he'd gone too far. Lynn agreed, yes, okay, I know, I will. I'll go tonight. Christine said, fine, we'll both go there tonight, we'll get it sorted out. He can't do this, how dare he do that? And then, unbeknownst to us, she had finished early that day and... He had contacted her. We've seen his text messages that he sent to her. And first of all, they're horrible. And then he it has, this is what a coercive controller does. He then realized that all of these abusive messages weren't working. She wasn't answering him. And then he turns it to manipulation. Okay, I get it now. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I'm just so gutted. I just need your shoulder to cry on. Please, I just need some comfort. I'll accept it. I know that I have to accept it. I just need to cry. I just need to cry on your shoulder. She'd given him a car, her old car, to help him find way. And he said, oh, and if you could just drop those car papers off, we still need to sort the transfer out. And then, you know, I'll be out of your life. That's it. And so that's how he got here to go around that day and he told her that somebody was there he wasn't alone she didn't have to be scared he had somebody with him shifty as a shithouse rat isn't he oh yeah yeah we've since found out that she was supposed to be going to a friend's house and she'd called her friend who also knew what had happened that morning and she told her friend look i'm just i've got to drop these papers off and then i'll be straight over and this was around 2 2 30 She'd finished work and her friend had said to her, don't go. What are you doing? Don't go there. She was worried about her. And I think there'd been an incident that week about another person who had stabbed his wife to death. And she said, what about, she cited that. She said, what about that woman that's just been stabbed by her ex-husband? I'm worried about you going. Don't go. And Lynn said, it's okay. He's got someone with him. I'm not stopping. I'm just dropping these papers off and I'll be straight over. And that was the last anybody ever heard from her.
Coming up after the break on Australian True Crime, Jackie relives the terrible events of Lynn's last moments. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We've actually got the footage of them walking into the house and a neighbour said that they could hear shouting and arguing and then it all went quiet and then it the shouting escalated and uh, again. I've spoken to a next-door neighbour who said that the screams became more urgent and they called the police. Now, he told me he called the police and he said that the neighbour on the other side also called the police and that the neighbours behind also called the police. And I, I stood talking to this neighbour and he said, but they just didn't come. They just didn't come. So the, we then have the housemate or the landlord, I should say. She turns up and say it was quarter past eight she got there and she went into the house and she's witnessed him standing over my sister out at the back of the house. He had two knives at this point and he was standing over here and my sister was sat with her, her legs up to her chest and her hands out. He said to him, because he had told the housemate not to come home early to stay out, that's another, you know, so it was all, he planned the whole thing. And he said to her, what the F are you doing here? F off. And she was just in shock and she, we read the transcript and she said, what are you doing? Put the effing knives down. And she went to go outside, just, she opened the door enough to get her head out. So they're in like a little courtyard area out the back of the house. And she pulled the door just enough to get her head out. My sister was asking her not My sister was saying, 
don't leave me. What a brave woman she was to yeah. run towards your sister in that environment. Jesus. And then he has lunged for her and tried to drag her out. And so she, she's obviously been in fear for her life. Mm. And she's, um, she ran back and she grabbed her keys and ran outside to get, to get help. And she mm. got in her car and she called the police. But not before witnessing him, him stabbing my sister. So it was done. She said within seconds, as she as she stood back, he's turned around and grabbed my sister and pulled her down and stabbed her. She called emergency services and the ambulance was there within eight minutes. But then, then when the ambulance arrived, it was one guy on his own at first, a paramedic by himself, and. We can hear the conversation to emergency services and emergency services are saying to the landlord, don't let him go in, don't tell him not to go in because police are still not there. Now the police, the ambulance arrived at 8.28 and the police were still not there. Now this paramedic, he waited seven minutes because he was being told, don't go in. Don't go in. You can't get there until the police are there. And we read his statement and he said that he felt that he would still go in, even though the police still hadn't arrived by then, because he knew there was a life in there that he could maybe save. And so at great risk to his own life, he cautiously entered the property, shouting out the whole time that he was going. And he could see my sister at the end of the hallway. And she'd actually tried to get out. She'd gone from the outside and she must have got to the hallway. But he, that maggot must have got her again. And so he got, he got to her and she'd, she gasped, she gasped for breath. And she'd still been alive. She'd still been alive while the ambulance was, that paramedic was being told, don't go in there because the police aren't there yet. And she was still in there. She was left for seven minutes while help was outside. And I just think, I don't know, I think her injuries were so severe that he wouldn't have saved her, but but she wouldn't have been alone. She would have had a, a kind face and somebody with her when she died, you know. So, but she was on her own. And I just think for somebody like Lynn, who was loved so much to die alone, well, it's just, it's unbearable. It's unbearable for us. So the whole family went to the trial. All of the family and her friend, all of her friends were there. How did he plead, by the way? He pleaded guilty. He had no option. There was an eyewitness to him. I was allowed to read my victim impact statement out, which was good. I mean, that's just so grueling as well, leading up to that, so emotionally. Uh, I guess we had to sit down with the prosecutor and go through everything that was going to be brought out in court. Um, and so they were really hard times to get through, listening to all the details of our sister's final moments, listening to the calls from neighbours to, you know, the operators and knowing that people were trying to get her help and it just wasn't arriving. It was really frustrating, emotionally devastating for us all. But we were determined to see it through and to support her and 
my victim impact statement, he wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't look at me. He just kept his head down the whole time. You know, and I did say, look at me, you coward, but he, he wouldn't. He just kept his head down. A sense of closure for Lynn Cannon's four sisters. Celebrations erupting after learning of her killer's life sentence. But knowing that he's got life now, with a minimum parole of 19 years, that's the best result that we could have wished for. The boys wanted to be with me when I read out my victim impact statement because they wanted him to face them, but they were denied that. They were told they weren't allowed to do that. They are absolutely gorgeous young men. They're, they are going to make somebody a wonderful husband, both of them. Everything about them is from their mum. We all, we all love each other. We, we're a very close, close family. That's a, a great thing for, for the boys. You know, so often in these situations, the, the children, no matter if they're little or grown, are left, I mean, I can't imagine a parent killing another parent and how devastating that is. And it, obviously tears families apart. But for the boys to have such a close-knit family on their mum's side is a, a really positive thing, obviously. Well, they're our ado adopted sons now, yeah. so we just look out for them like we would our own kids. It's what she would have done if it had been any one of us. And we know that they would have been her last thought and we just hope that she would have known that we would be there for them and we will continue to be there for them for the rest of their lives. We can't bring Lynn back now. You know, we've accepted that. Well, as much as you could ever possibly accept it. But what we can do is try our best to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Or, I mean, it seems saying that, I know it's going to happen again. That's the sad reality of it. I know, but I've learned so much from hearing stories like yours, you know, and that I agree with you. That's the only thing any of us can do is yeah. repeat these stories to each other, tell it, inf inform each other. Hopefully somebody will listen and, you know, think, hang on a minute, that sounds like my situation. Yes. You know, maybe I'm in danger here. Well, the one thing that we can do and what we're trying to do is to, we want to introduce something called Lynn's Law. Her boys have said that that is their wish, that that's what they want now more than anything. That would be no call for a domestic violence to, to the emergency services for a domestic violence incidents should ever be less than a priority to, because that will save lives. Yeah. It would have saved Lynn's life. Because when Christine made that phone call at 7.30, she told the emergency operator what had taken place that morning, that he had broken into her home, that he had turned off unannounced, that he had a weapon, he had a knife, he had threatened her life. We had since found out that she had gone there to take papers there and nobody had heard from her. Everybody was trying to get in touch with her. And she hadn't been active on her phone since early afternoon and nobody had been able to get in touch with her. We were really worried this was out of character for her. She had given where she was. The car that she drove, which was parked on the driveway. So the emergency operator, it took them seven minutes to take all of this information. Then made Lynn a priority too. Rightly so. A priority too. We've been told by the commissioner that that is a 12-minute response. 
7.30, if they had gone priority two to Lynn, they would have saved her life, without a doubt, because Lynn was still alive until the landlord came home. Now, the landlord came home, they're saying quarter past eight. We witnessed a CCTV showing her going in at 20 past eight anyway. Lynn was still alive when the landlord went home. She hadn't been stabbed by then. So 7.30, Christine calls the emergency operator. The emergency operator made Lynn priority two. We've since learned that then it gets sent to a dispatch duty officer in the, in this case, the Joondalup police station. And they then prioritise the calls that have come in. He took it upon himself to downgrade Lynn to a priority three. So from that moment, any chance Lynn had to survive was taken away from her because a priority three is a one-hour response. Well, even in saying that, the police didn't get there in an hour anyway. Domestic violence is not taken seriously enough. After all the talk, after people keep yeah. saying, why is it getting worse? Because everyone talks about it all the time. The police, the politicians, everyone says, oh, we're getting serious about domestic violence. We get it. We hear you. We get it. And then we hear stories like this and we go, okay, well, maybe that's why. And so we've really, you know, we've wrecked our heads with, well, what could we do that would make a difference? And what would have made a difference? What would have saved Lynn's life that night? would have been if she had been remained a priority too because then they would have been pulled off of the jobs and sent to her and you've been told that her life has been threatened that morning that he has a weapon that she's at the house that nobody can get hold of her she's obviously in a serious situation but you've downgraded her to a priority three you get a phone call saying somebody's threatened has been round there broken into her home and threatened her life Today. With a knife. He has a weapon. It, Christine ends the phone call when they say, okay, job has been dispatched. We said, you know, we had known you were going to take that long. We gone yourself. Tried to get there ourselves. We would have gone on there yeah. ourselves. When somebody says, when you ring an emergency operator and you are told, okay, a job has been dispatched, you think a police car is heading there, lights and sirens flashing, they're on their way help is going they're going to get there long before anybody else could but if they had said to us okay we've we've dispatched that job but it's going to take an hour before somebody gets there we could have made phone calls and had people there in 20 minutes so but we weren't given that opportunity we presumed that they would do their job they would save and protect and they would protect my sister from that maggot we were told that they deemed that it wasn't imminent, the threat, because that had happened in the morning and this was later on that day. I mean, I just can't get my head around that. No, it shows a real, a complete lack of understanding of the, of the empirical evidence. Yeah, and it happens behind closed doors. Yeah. People aren't eyewitnesses to the event happening. It happens behind closed doors. Was there an inquest or an inquiry or anything about the way that the phone call was handled. We were asking questions right from the very start about the time because we knew that police turned up at 8.44 and we knew that Christine had called them at 7.30. So from the very start, we were saying, why didn't they go? 
Why didn't they go? And first of all, they were saying, oh, oh, you gave us the wrong number, they said. So initially, in the state that she was in and everybody's heightened emotions, Christine gave them number 23 instead of number 24. I've driven there. 23 is directly opposite. If they had, they didn't even go to 23. Mm. So that shouldn't even come into it. Had they gone to 23, they would have seen her car that they had a description of sat on the driveway opposite. They would have heard her screams because all of the neighbors heard her screams. There would have been no doubt as to which house those screams were coming from. And Christine corrected them. She called back and said, I've made a mistake. It's 24, not 23. So they then had the right address in still in plenty of time to save Lynn. It made no difference though. It made no difference at all. We've been told they, that they did their own internal investigation and they couldn't find any fault. So we decided to take it further. I wrote to the ombudsman. They sent it to the triple C. The triple C gave it back to the police of the internal affairs. I've still waiting to hear back from them. That was months ago. And then after the trial, we decided to go to the media with it because we just weren't getting the answers of what took precedence over my sister's life that night. And then bringing it to the media, there's now been a coronial inquest ordered. So there's a coronial inquest into it now. So we're just waiting to hear the findings of that. And I'm hoping that they will... They will take note now and that they will listen to us and that they will make that change. They'll name it after my sister. We have been, we have met with the police commissioner and he's invited us to go and view police operations and training, um, which, you know, my sister Christine and I are, are going to do. I'm just reading this story from ABC News on the 6th of September, which says WA's police commissioner has pledged to review the circumstances of the night that Lynn Cannon was stabbed to death by her estranged partner but he's refusing to release the call logs from the night, showing how many times neighbours and family members contacted police with concerns. You know, ironically, just a couple of months after we lost my sister, or not even about a month later, I had a friend who found herself in the same situation. She didn't want to tell me at first because she thought it would be too raw. But her ex-husband got her to go to his house, where it was a unit, and he dragged her inside. And she was held there for hours and he had a knife and he pulled a knife on her and she was screaming for help. And a neighbor called the police and he happened to live in units that were next door almost to the police station in Perth. They sent the police there then. This was about a month after Lynn was murdered. The police went, they kicked the door down and he threw the knife. And she's alive today to tell the story. There's the difference, yeah, absolutely. There's the difference. When the police turn up, they save lives. They just had to turn up for Lynn that night. And they would have saved her life. And the boys would have still had their mom. And we would have still had our lovely sister. And our friends would have had their loyal friend. We've got to live with how she was taken, the brutal way in which she was taken. Somebody so loving like her to be taken in that way. And then we've got to live with the fact that she could have been saved. They should never have downgraded her to priority three, ever. And that's what we want changed. We don't ever want that to happen again. If they get a call to emergency services, 
for a domestic violence incident. And they were told their life was threatened. Don't ever, ever downgrade that again. It remains priority to let that be Lynn's law. Let that be her legacy that she's made a change. She helped people all of her life. All of her life she helped people. She can continue to help people after her death if they make Lynn's law. And that will be really good for her sons. They've lost their mom. But to have that will be something that they would like to happen, to know that she's continuing to help others even after she's gone. Thank you to our guests today, Jackie Darley, and to her sister Christine, who was right by her side for moral support. Both Jackie and Christine did take up the WA Police Commissioner's invitation to come in and view police operations and training. Jackie said that they were happy with what they saw, but that it actually means nothing if the police don't arrive at the crime scene in time to implement any of it. This is why she and her family are calling for Lynn's Law to be implemented. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for downloading this episode. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.